This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fun? You had fun? Okay. What was fun? <laughs> Here comes the broad generalizations, right? What's that? The play. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, we, we want to see that. We want to hear, uh, hear all about it. So I want to hear some more about it afterwards. Okay, one more thing. What was something fun that you did over Christmas? Relaxation, okay. Baby Ben opening presents first. Christmas. Oh, it's so sweet. Now, did anybody have a disaster on Christmas? Did that happen? Uh, oh, what was our disaster? I don't even remember. Our kids are sick. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my oldest Maeve is doing the mouth breathing. You guys heard that? Oh, the congestion's so bad, and she's just like, <laughs> right? it's like a bad dog that just won't stop panting. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, that was a, a little bit of a Christmas disaster. Any, anybody else have a Christmas disaster? No naps. Oh, man, spoken like a real dad over there. That is a tragedy. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you guys had uh, mostly a joyful Christmas. It was uh, mostly joyful for us outside of the, the girls getting uh, sick. Um, we are just great to, uh, greatly excited to be back here. I can't believe we're coming to the end of 2022. And if you actually were to think back with me for a moment, uh, here in our church, we had established a goal for our church this year, and that goal was that we wanted to grow in our faithfulness to the gospel and our faithfulness to one another. Right? So that was our main theme that we focused in on this year. When you, when you think of church, often we think of the ways that we want to grow together in our community context. One of the things I love hearing from people about Hebrew Church of Hope is that they feel welcome when they come into the door. Right? That's, that's usually great news. Or one of the comments I regularly hear from people is, man, it just seems like you people really care about each other. Isn't that awesome to hear when we, we hear things like, you really do care about each other. Now, when we think of this, when it when God has created his church to be, we are a group of people who are sinners, right? So let's just establish this, right? There is no perfect church. Amen, brothers and sisters? No perfect church, which means that we are not perfect people. We are sinners who need the Lord Jesus. Now, the reality of that is that we all come with our differences, right? 
yet we unite together under the good news of the gospel. That's the beauty of belonging to a church. Yet through time, as imperfect people, we do have a longing for perfection, do we not? We have a longing for perfection. And at times, those longings express themselves in ways that are maybe beneficial or not so beneficial to the whole of belonging to a church body, right? Now, just like a family, in your family, there are multiple members, right? So it's not just in the house that dad gets his way and mom and the kids do whatever they, uh, whatever dad says. And it's not just that mom gets her way and, and dad and the kids get no say in anything or that the kids get their way, right? If a household is run by their kids, there is chaos, right? So it's not just that, uh, that there's one group of people that gets their say over another thing. We are a body. We, as a family, have different members that make up a whole unit, and all of those things, their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, the times where somebody has to lead over others, these are beautiful expressions, but they can also show deficiencies. And Paul, as he's writing to the Galatians, this is really important for us to remember, that he's writing to a context where there's a group of people who are gathering together that are imperfect. They're imperfect, and they've been persuaded to believe in something that is outside of the perfect gospel, right? So if we're looking for perfection, brothers and sisters, if we're looking for perfection in the church, the perfection lies in the Savior, not in us, amen? It lies in the Savior, the Lord Jesus, and it lies in the message of his good news, that he's rescued us from sin. Now, outside of that, our budget's never going to be perfect, amen? Right? (laughs) We are going to feel at times deficiencies and at times uh, surpluses where we can see the glory of God and his provision. There are going to be times where our ministry teams are going to feel like they are insufficient and times where it's going to be like, how do we have this many people doing rotation in these different settings? Well, we praise the Lord. There are always good things that come in the church and bad things that come into the church, but we have to recognize that perfection lies completely in the Lord Jesus alone. Amen? So what does all of this have to do with Galatians 4? Oh, building up, remember Galatians 1 and 2. As Paul begins his letters to the Galatians, he's calling them out for running away from the perfect Savior to a message of a group of people who are telling them, in order for you to actually be part of this family, you have to do these types of things. Right? Belonging with God's people is not about following all the rules perfectly. Belonging with God's people is about trusting in Jesus alone, individually, and together. Okay, so what is the church made up of? It's made up of a group of imperfect sinners who are trusting in the perfect Lord Jesus. Okay, so he's pointing out that they've abandoned this message, that he's concerned about them, and he's verifying the message of the gospel in chapter 1 all the way into chapter 2, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? Then in chapter 3, he starts to tackle or defend uh, what the true gospel is versus the message that's coming from the outsiders. And he's particularly using the Old Testament as a way to show us how God's plan has been from the beginning of time to have a people who are united to him by faith. Okay? So by faith, we belong as the people of God. So we saw, how do we see this fruit come to us? 
Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, the reality that the Spirit has been given to us. In Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, in the reality that Christ has become the curse, the payment for our sin. What we owe to God, Jesus fulfilled for us. So now we have our debt paid and a Savior who has taken our place. In chapter 3, verses 15, all the way through to 25, we see this in the reality of the fulfillment of the promises realized in the person and work of Christ. The promises once given to Abraham now realized in what Jesus has done for us. But not only that, we see that in that we are children of God. Chapter 3, verse 26, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. And now it's going to feel like Paul is coming to this section, Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20, like it's almost like a little bit of a speed bump in what he's been developing. He's saying, here's Old Testament promise, realized in Jesus. Old Testament promise, realized in Jesus. Old Testament promise, realized in Jesus. And now he gets a personal note out to the church. The church is made up of imperfect people looking to a perfect Savior. And yet, in all of that imperfection, God gives us the gift of one another. Did you hear that? In all of our imperfection, what does God give us? The gift of being together. So here's my argument for you for this morning from Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Based on Paul's appeal to, uh, to the Galatians, we learn about what it means to be a gospel church. Okay, so what is a gospel church? A gospel church is a group of Christians who exercise biblical care in the form of loving correction. A group of people who are Christians who exercise biblical care and loving correction. Now, I'm just going to give you this caveat that that is not the complete definition of a church. This is just part of what it means to be a gospel church to biblically care for each other, which looks like lovingly correcting one another. So if you were to come into Hebrew Church of Hope, right, remember all the things that we hear from people, great things, great feedback, like you really love each other, you really care about each other, you are warm and welcoming. Those are all very positive things, but there can also be a negative light to that as well, right? Because love is not the celebration of everything, right? That's what the world's telling us right now, but that's not true love, right? Love is not the celebration of everything. Love is the embrace also of imperfection. Okay. So what we're learning from Paul is to be a gospel church means that we must care for each other and correct each other. Okay. So in verses 8 through 11, we're going to see Paul express his concern for these Galatians. He's going to point out another specific way that he is concerned that they're running away from the gospel. And then we're going to see in verses 12 through 20, his tone shifts. In chapter 3, verse 1, he starts off like this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Right? Now that's a correction that's strong. And here in chapter 4, he is continuing in that tone until verse 12, where he then goes on and says, I entreat you, brothers. And that word entreat is like a expression of I plead with you with everything that I have and everything that I am that you go in this way. 
So he starts off with pointing it out. He expresses his care, and by that, he gives correction. Okay? So verses 8 through 11, expressing the point. Verses 12 through 20, expressing the care. Okay? All right, so that's the structure. That's where we're headed. If you're taking notes, I hope that's helpful to you. Um, let's look here at this first idea, that a gospel church looks out for each other. A gospel church looks out for each other. Galatians 4, verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I've labored over you in vain. So this is not like the, the, uh, the fluffy love <laughs> expression that's coming out here. Notice verse 11. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Paul almost sounds exasperated, doesn't he? Where he's like, man, I have just been working with you guys, and it just feels like, what am I even doing here? Now, that's an odd way. I think if I express my love and care for you guys in that way right now, you'd be like, oh, boy, there's something up. <laughs> Pastor's, like, pretty upset right now, right? And, and that's really what Paul's trying to get to. He's saying, hey, there's a real problem here, guys. So let's look at what he's trying to point out to them. In verse 8, formally, right? Chapter 4 was telling us just this point. You are now children of God. And then in verse 8, he, he reflects back. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Okay, so the theme of, of slavery has come up here in Galatians multiple times now. Okay, so Paul has made the point that these Galatians are under the slavery of the Judaizers who are telling them that they have to be circumcised in order to gain table fellowship, right? If you look back at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, when Paul calls out Peter at, for his hypocrisy among the Gentiles uh, and the Judaizers, it's because when they were eating together, the Judaizers came in, the circumcision party, the text says, and he got up and he left the table of the Gentiles. So there's this real pressure that exists in the, the slavery of this group. But that's not what... Paul's talking about right here. He's saying when you were formerly enslaved to those that are by nature not God's. He's talking to the Galatians about their pagan beliefs prior to coming to Christ. They lived in Galatia. There was a small Jewish presence, but these people are overwhelmingly not Jewish in their makeup. This is not their heritage. They're from Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, which was part of the empire of Rome, which was made up of deities that were uh, like innumerable in worship. And so what Paul says is, prior to you coming to Christ, you were this way. And then in verse 9, he talks about their conversion. Now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to these things? So this might feel a little bit disjointed, but I want to show you the connection here. Here's what Paul's saying. In those verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now that sounds like Judaism, right? It is also Roman pagan worship. The Roman calendar was full of times where people would come together and they would worship thing after thing after thing and make sacrifices and, and worship idols. But what Paul is associating here is that this kind of enslavement 
back into Jewish legal terms is the same kind of enslavement that they were under when they were worshiping false gods. So Paul is making a very bold point here. Now remember Paul's character. Remember Paul's story. Remember Paul's own conversion. He was known as what? The Jew of the Jews. A scholar. Somebody who is zealous for the things of the law. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we hear that Paul abandoned the things of the law to become like a Gentile so that he could reach Gentiles for the sake of the gospel. The law no longer had its bind on him. But Paul is saying, brothers, sisters, children of God, when you are running back to these things, these rules, these regulations, when you are under the trap and the tyranny of living by a certain law, you are embracing false worship. That's his concern. His concern is that going into Judaism after you've believed in the gospel is like going into pagan worship. Now that's tough news for these Galatians. And it really matches the tone of what he's trying to say in verse 11. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. It's like the expression, you take one step forward and you take how many back? Two back. Yeah, it's like you're moving forward, you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, you're finding life in him, but now you're being distracted by these other things and you're going your way, where not only you're stepping out of the gospel, you're stepping into something that's entirely opposed to the gospel. This is abandoning the faith. And so I just want to give us a couple of practical notes here for us. Now, we're not Paul. Right? No one has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus here. Right? We're not Paul. We're not apostles. We have the gospel. We have the hope of the gospel and our trust in Christ. But notice how Paul's speaking to these other believers. This is something that we can learn. There are going to be times, guys, we're going to hear from leaders in the church expressing concern and care for you. This is one of my least favorite parts of being a pastor. <laughs> is expressing concern and care. Because sometimes it means that you have to have hard conversations with us. Now, I think most people are not the confrontational type. Amen? Right? Like, I, I know a few people, when they see a problem, they got no problem jumping in and saying, this is wrong, right? And I love those people. It's fresh. It's, it's beautiful. It's raw. It's authentic. But there's like, if you were to put this in a scale, it's maybe like, four or five out of 100, <laughs> right, of kinds of people. I think more often than not, people are hesitant to be confrontational. They see an issue, and what do they do? They, they are like, okay, I hope this kind of figures itself out. Right? Anybody feel like you might be in that category? Right? Or maybe somewhere in between? Right? Now, I, have, I, I feel like Jekyll and Hyde at times because I feel like I can be number one, but I can also be number two, right? Where it's like, I see something wrong, and I'm like, oh, yeah, let's break out the holy four-by-four and slam this down, right? <laughs> I'm not afraid, right? You, you throw a prosperity gospel preacher in front of me, and oh, boy, we are swinging, right? <laughs> I am not afraid to tackle that. But then you, you throw in, like, a little bit of a secondary theological issue, 
and it might be more like, oh, okay, this isn't the, the main news, but this is something that's important. Oh, man. And then I started thinking through, does this person belong to my church? Do I have to answer for their soul before the Lord? Oh, boy, now, now I'm, I have less responsibility if they're not, but if they do, I'm like, oh, man, I have to say something, right? Or I hear from someone in the church body that's like, I'm really concerned about this brother or sister. I think you ought to say something. And the first question in my mind goes, did you, <laughs> please, <laughs> did you say something? <laughs> or am I out on my own here, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is not the fun part of being a pastor. It's not fun to, to point out things. But I'll tell you this, if I ran away from saying hard things to people, you should fire me. I'm serious about it. We have to. We have to be willing to have hard conversations with each other, to point out sins. And listen, there's a spectrum of theology we need to keep in focus here. There's what's primary. Now, when I say primary, this makes or breaks Christianity. That's what primary is. Okay? So if there's something that somebody's saying that's pri- like primarily against what's absolutely abundantly and clear in scripture, like if somebody says Jesus is not God, we need to pull a Saint Nicholas and punch some heretics. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like Jesus is God. That's primary. It's much easier to be strong about that. If it's something that's secondary, now there's a, a bigger range, right? Because these are important things. They might distinguish what it means to be a Baptist from a Pentecostal, right? And they might distinguish even how we may see we're united, we preach the gospel, but there's differences here. And there are things that are at the top end of that and things that are at the lower end of that. And then there are areas of liberty, right? Areas of liberty, things like where the Bible's not abundantly clear, but it gives us principles to live by. Like, you know, the Democratic and Republican parties did not exist in the biblical times, right? Like Jesus was not a Republican and he wasn't a Democrat either. He certainly wasn't a libertarian. <laughs> there are things for us to look at here and see that there is flexibility to use biblical principle to, to get there. Now, here's my concern. Outside of Christianity, we're really dealing with primary things. Somebody who's not a Christian versus somebody who's a Christian, we're talking about what makes or breaks Christianity. But in the church, most of the arguments aren't in what's primary, it's what's in secondary and what's in an area of liberty. And I'm far too concerned that people today are taking things of liberty and placing them in the primary category. They're saying, hey, you don't vote this way, you're not a Christian. <laughs> Just show me, like, chapter and verse, please. Like, show me. Now, it's okay to express concern with somebody based off of maybe their political affiliation. And may, you may be able to have a conversation, but you have to do it like this, with an open hand. <laughs> right? Say, hey, I think the Bible teaches this. Can we have a conversation about this? And I might be wrong. Here's another category of something that I think is secondary, that's really important, but something that we can have differences in. Ready for the word? Eschatology. Okay? What's that? End times. Okay? All right? So here's the big thing to major on. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm coming back. What does he say about his time coming back? No one knows the day or the hour. 
And there are multiple positions in eschatology, whether you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial, or I don't, I don't even think there's a, well, there's a category that's tribulation, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. That's all sorts of things. But here's the thing. You can all, as long as you agree that Jesus is returning, you can have differences here in these different camps. But I find so many people who are, uh, like, orienting their life around a particular eschatology that makes me go, why? That's not abundantly clear. Why? Why would you say you can't worship with others because they're premillennial dispensationalists? That's foolish. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. So why are you all of a sudden better than Jesus and you can say the day or the hour? That has to happen in Christ. Now, can you become convinced upon those positions based on the scripture? You can. But you have to hold them with an open hand. You have to say, Jesus says this, and what Jesus says trumps all of the other ways that I might put the Bible together to say that Jesus has to do it this way. Because why? You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. So when Jesus says something, when your red letter edition of the Bible says something, you maybe should listen to that. And for those of us that you know, don't have to have red letters, the textbook said Jesus said. <laughs> you, can, you can read that. Right? It's important. But it's not going to make or break your faith. And it's not going to make or break even some fellowship that you can have. Now, it's important to recognize if that's something that you find to be very important in the second, second like, category, the area of secondary things, you can worship with others in those secondary things. And if that means that you can't be part of a church because you're irritated that your pastor's not in the same eschatological camp as you are, no problem. Love you and Jesus is probably the church that, that is in the same category as you are. Not a problem. Pray to God that the kingdom's bigger than my circle. That's not make or break. But guys, when we make it make or break, we're doing disservice to the Lord. Here's the thing, right? So you may notice, if you look at our statement of faith, right, it's called the New Hampshire Confession, which was written by a group of Calvinists in the 1800s in New Hampshire, okay? Now, not everybody here is a Calvinist. You don't have to be a Calvinist to be part of this church. You recognize that, right? Okay. Some of you are like, yeah, I've known that for years. Right? <laughs> Caleb, amen? Amen? <laughs> you don't have to be. <laughs> he's the only non-Calvinist I can make fun of for that. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we have that kind of brotherhood. Right? You don't have to be a Calvinist to be part of this church. Now, our, our statement of faith has that lean, but it's a lean. Particularly. Like, we put it that way for a reason. Because we think that there should be a broad enough category. Right? If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, that if you repent and you believe, and you can affirm all of the other positions that we write in our statement of faith, you can belong in this church. Praise the Lord. But you don't have to be of a particular theological camp. It's not about that. It's about belonging in the gospel. It's about belonging according to the things that are very clear in the Bible. Paul's concerned for these guys because he's saying, what you run into is exactly what I'm talking about here. People who have said, 
hey, you're in Jesus. You believe the gospel? Praise God. Now, if you really want to be part of this group of believers and have this kind of status, you have to do these things. What's that? That's legalism, man. That's what that is. Now, some of those secondary things are going to be important, but they're not necessarily make or break. That's why we have what we like to call theological wiggle room. It's a very, very sophisticated term. Nonetheless, we look out for each other, right? So here, what do I expect of you guys? What, what should you expect of me? That we would actually care about what we believe. That's at least a standard, right? We have to care about what we believe. We have to know what category is what and where to put those. So there are going to be times where people are going to make more of an emphasis on something that's in tier two or tier three, that they're just going to need to be humbly reminded, hey, that's secondary and that's an area of liberty. Don't make it a gospel issue. It also means that you've got to be willing to have that hard conversation. Where you're like, hey, you know what? I, I hear you saying this. Can you just, you guys, you've got to learn to ask clarifying questions. Can you explain? The best question you can ask somebody is this question. Can you open the Bible and show me? Can you open the Bible and show me? That's the best question to ask. So you're looking for false teaching. You're looking for people who are making an emphasis where the emphasis shouldn't be. Do you care enough to look at the lives of other Christians and say, hey, here's the main thing. Are we united on? And then to celebrate the non-main things with diversity. Celebrate them. Did you hear me on that? Celebrate them. Not be annoyed by them. As I'm saying that to you right now, that's something that like, I need to repent of. My annoyance at non-primary things. I, you know, I, I, every month I meet together with a group of pastors in Colchester guys that are not on the same theological page as me. This is one guy, he's a pastor of an Assemblies of God church, and he is crazy. <laughs> Just like, totally off the wall, crazy. Like, so much energy, and just, we're on very different pages of, of things. And in the last few months, I've really come to love this brother. And he, he had a, like, he, he looked so fit and so thin, he had a double bypass surgery. And he was bedridden for months. And when he came back, and I got to see him again, I was just like, wow, look at how the Lord's given me an affection for this brother who like, preaches and practices things that I look at him and I go, dude, I, don't, <laughs> I think you're off your rocker. <laughs> and yet, I love him. I can genuinely say that. I love this guy who's different from me. I'm glad that he believes in Jesus and Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection and in repentance and faith as the response to the gospel. I'm glad that we're united in those things and I'm glad that he's in his camp that is not my camp. Because what I know is he loves Jesus and he wants other people to love Jesus and I'm so thankful that those people get to have him as their pastor. Okay, the second thing. Sorry, I can going. Uh, second thing we learn from this is not only should we look out for each other, but we should actually express our care 
and correcting to one another. So we're looking for these things, but then looking isn't the end of them. It's caring and correcting that is continuing in this passage. Brothers, I entreat you, says verse 12, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. That's a reflection back on the reality of 2 Corinthians 9. Paul became all things to all people so that some may come to know the gospel. And verse 13 says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So we don't know exactly what brought Paul to Galatia, but what we do see here is that he went through something that ailed him in such a way that he needed to be under the intense care of others. And that these Galatians received him and accepted him, and they were willing to serve him in such a way that in verse 15 he says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The kind of relationship Paul had with these Galatians was that, as the text says, they received him like an angel of God. Now, he wasn't spectacular. He wasn't like the guest preacher that comes in and he's smooth talking, right? He was the guy that came in that was like crippled and beat up and tossed on the road and said, I need some help, guys, right? And they they what? They received him like an angel of the Lord. Why? Because he brought the good news. But in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? Something's changed in their relationship. Do you see this? Something has changed. And it's the fact that these Judaizers and what they're teaching the Galatians has broken up their, Paul's relationship with the Galatians so badly that it's like they're treating him as an enemy. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's what verse 16 says. So Paul is, what he's saying here is he's expressing his care. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I did. How did Paul arrive to the Galatians? Broken down, hurting. And how did they receive him? Like an angel. And how did Paul receive that? With grace. With grace and humility, he accepted that love. And now he's saying to them, become like that. I'm coming to you with these hard words, and I don't like that I have to say these things to you, but I'm I'm entreating you, I'm pleading with you, hear me, come to me, listen, remember how you received me. Don't, Don't run away from me, don't treat me like your enemy. I care about you. Verse 17 They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. Ooh, this is the tough talk coming in here. Like, I'm concerned you're embracing these secondary or even tertiary or non-gospel things. Paul's saying these are non-gospel things. I'm, I'm concerned about this. Become like I've become to you. Come come in humility, hear this truth, and now he's saying, brothers and sisters, what's at the heart of this is the concern that the people you're following don't really want to see you grow in a non-selfish motive. They want you 
to make much of them. They're leading you astray so that you can become the puppeteer of their show. So they can look and go, look at what we've done. Look at what we've created. They were the Christians, and now are real Christians because they're embracing their shadow. And Paul says, hey, listen, it's, it's nice to be made much of, isn't it? It's nice to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you. It's great to hear reports of how the Galatians are doing well. And here's anguish in verse 19. My little children. Remember chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Remember chapter 4. Children of God. Remember chapter 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. Now remember chapter 4, verse 19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed. What Paul is experiencing here is this, okay? You guys know how babies are born? Yeah, okay. If you don't, don't have kids. <laughs> Sorry, parents. <laughs> babies are born, you know, that, how that happens, okay? Paul is saying what he's experiencing with these Galatians is like he's given birth to them, and they're returning to things where they're having to re-enter the womb, and he's having to give birth all over again. And that's not fun, right, ladies? Right? I think there's a reason that in the curse, God said, you will have pain and childbearing. Think of that connection, though, for a moment, brothers and sisters. In Genesis 2, part of the curse was that women would suffer in childbearing. What Paul is saying here, my little children, the sin of these brothers and sisters in Galatia is giving him the pain and anguish like childbearing. It hurts. It's not easy. You know, what's hard about this is, like, the beauty of childbearing, though there's pain, at the end of that pain, you get to hold your baby, right? What Paul is saying here is, I've given birth to you, and I held you as my sweet and precious child, and now you want to come back into the womb, and you want to be born out to be somebody else's child. And think of the breakdown of his heart that's in here. And that's why he ends this. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. So this little speed bump is getting like a pastoral note. In his defense, when he's tearing down the Judaizers' arguments, what is he trying to do? He's not just trying to say the right thing. He's not just trying to get his theology right. He's trying to tell him, I love you. Is that your posture, Christian? Or are you just trying to say the right thing? You love the people God placed you with. I, I've shared this before. One of the greatest pieces of pastoral wisdom any pastor's ever given me this is this. Pastor the people you have, not 
the people you hope to help. Ben knocked me off my horse real quick. Why? I, I long for your growth, brothers and sisters. I long for my own growth. But pastoring you doesn't mean that I pastor the version of you that I hope you become. It means pastoring you right now where you are. And just handing you over to the Lord to say, here's the word. Here's my inconsistency. Here's my sin. But here's Jesus. Here he is. He's enough, isn't he? That's really how Christians ought to relate to one another. I love you. I consider you to be of value to me. You are part of my family. You are in Christ. I'm in Christ. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my friend. You're like a grandpa or a grandma to me. Or a father or a mother. You're a gift. sisters, if I haven't told you lately, you're a gift to me. And part of that gift means that we get to live in every context. The joys and celebrations and the hardships and the pains. Some of the greatest privileges I've had as a pastor are not just in the celebration of seeing your baby born and seeing you baptized seeing you take the supper and remembering again the Lord Jesus is also meeting you in those moments of pain. It feels like your marriage is breaking down. It feels like sin is creeping in. The great joy is seeing you run to your Savior and crying out for help. Oh, Jesus. hard, but it's so beautiful. So I don't want to just be a community of believers here who just welcome each other warmly, where we might have small interactions. I want you in my home and in my life, and I'm going to wear my heart on my sleeve, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to show up. I'm not going to show up. going to do that to each other. But we can always run back to Jesus, can't we? Can't we always run back to him and say, thank you God for the gift of this. It's not perfect. At times it's ugly. But at the end of it, there's always beauty. Because there's something transcendent above all. The gospel. It's not just about caring. It's not just about looking. It's about being a gospel church. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Amen? God, we come to you in our need. Sometimes we're annoyed by each other. Sometimes we see 
things that we post online <laughs> or send an email. We see, even in our conversations, at times there, there are differences. God, we, sometimes we're annoyed by that. Would you help us to see the gift of the church? That we can be different and love each other? God, I pray that you would give me as the pastor of this church a boldness to get over my fear of man and to love people well, which means not just saying things I hope they, they want to hear, but saying things that they do need to hear. God, I pray that you would continue to build in us a culture that's centered on the gospel, that celebrates the fact that we're united and much greater than us, and celebrates that we can be different in other categories. And God, when we see people running away from the gospel, I pray that you would build in this church not only watchdogs who would be on the prowl to see what's not good for us, but that you would also build in us gentle shepherds. Those that pull others in and embrace them with the love of Christ. Because your word tells us, welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you. May we welcome each other into our lives and care for each other in a way where we truly mean because of the Bible, because of what we have in Christ, that we belong to each other. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to break into a couple of groups here, or a few groups, um, and pray. Here's what I'd love for you to do. We're just going to take like three or four minutes to pray together.